Well, let's pray before we consider this part of God's Word. Our Lord God and Heavenly Father, you speak and all of your word is true and helpful for building us up, rebuking our sin, for helping us to follow our Lord Jesus. So, Father, we pray that by your word, read and preached this day, that you might teach and rebuke and correct and train us in righteousness. You might enable me to speak your word truly and faithfully. Lord, that by your spirit we ask that you might please work in us to respond in a way that pleases you and that helps us to keep following our Lord Jesus. We ask in his name. Amen. I was watching a show on Netflix two weeks ago. Uh, it's called You Versus Wild with Bear Grylls. And it's a bit like a choose-your-own-adventure choose books that I read when I was young. In this particular episode, Bear Grylls was on a mission in the desert and he has to catch a rattlesnake to make anti-venom. He moves into a cave. He finds a snake. And you, the viewer, are given the choice between grabbing the snake's tail to capture it or you can hold a stick over the snake's head, push the head of the snake into the ground to grab the snake. And I said to my son Micah, as we were watching, choose the grab the tail option. Because I've said, I've seen Australian snake handlers do that uh, in Australia on TV before. Uh, but this was, we found out later, a rattlesnake and it, the tail was curled up and Bear Grylls, of course, ended up getting bitten. Uh, and if he didn't get evacuated out of there, then he'd have died. Thankfully, on the show, uh, you can go back and try again. <laughs> and you can choose the other option. But in life, uh, we don't always get that chance, do we? To have your time over again and make a different choice. And some choices that we make have huge and lasting consequences. Here, as Israel stands on the edge of the promised land and Moses speaks to them, this new generation has a chance to not repeat the sins of their parents. The faithless Exodus generation had wandered and died in the wilderness and their children have arrived at a place of decision. Will they repeat the mistakes and sins of their parents? At every stage in the book of Deuteronomy, it is interested in depicting the choices that face Israel in the past, in the present and in the future. The, the desert is behind. The, the promised land is ahead. Chapters 1 to 3 deal with Israel's past decisions and the opportunity to obey in the presence. Last week, chapter 1, there Moses reminded the people of Israel's, of the, their parents, these people's parents, failure to trust the Lord, their failure to take possession of the land. But the gloom of wilderness faithlessness, the gloom begins to lift a little in chapter 2. And the nation begins to move forward in the right direction once more. 
And the conquests of these two kings are fresh in national memory and they provide the pattern for obedience moving forward, an example of the way that things should be done. So in chapters 2 and 3, Moses reminds the people of these events. And in this, Moses is also reminding the covenant people of God's grace. As we heard last week, Deuteronomy is all about grace, about being saved by God's grace, having hope in God's gracious provision and in living in response to his grace. For remembering the blessings that have come by God's grace is the driving force for their obedience. We're going to look at chapters 2 and 3 this morning. These two chapters are filled with words starting with P. And so we're going to go through the text looking out for these P words and ideas which are repeated. You've got a table in your outline if you want to note verses or points there. Passing through and provision or giving and possession and perishing. And we'll see that the people are to possess what God graciously provides or perish. Possess what God graciously provides or perish. In verse 2, the Lord tells his people through Moses, it's time to stop wandering and head north and they are to pass by Edom and Moab and Ammon. In verse 4, they are to pass through the land owned by Esau's descendants, literally your brothers, the sons of Esau. This is the land of Edom, and you'll see Edom mentioned on the top right of the map. Genesis chapter 36 speaks of Esau's descendants settling here in Edom, or what became known as Edom. And Israel is prohibited from taking their land, for God has not given it to them. God's not given this land to Israel. It was given by God to Esau. Verse 5, I have given Esau the hill country of Seir as his own, or or more literally as the ESV translates it, for a possession. It's striking. We could say it's even astonishing that the, the Lord has given them their lands in a way that's comparable to him giving the promised land to his people Israel. This tells us that God sovereignly controls the nations. In Acts chapter 17, Acts 17 verse 26, we're told from one man God made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. And this tells us, doesn't it, that God's providence is behind the movements of people. His providence is behind even the the post-war land grabs of people. Even post-war land grabs are in the hand of God. So in verse 8, in obedience to the Israelites, they pass by. They're trusting that God's past provision, mentioned in verse 7, that God's past provision, that it will continue into the future. But then in verse 9, God says the same thing about the Moabites, the descendants of Lot. God gave them their land as 
a possession. The word also means an inheritance. And this points back to Genesis chapter 19. And then we have this little shot at the Israelites. Last week in chapter 1, verse 28, that said that decades ago, in response to hearing of the giant Anakites in the Promised Land, the Israelites were filled with fear rather than faith, and they refused to go in and take possession of the land four decades ago. But here in chapter 2, verse 10, you have Lot's descendants we're told, taking land from the Emites, and Israel called them Rephaites. Don't worry about the names, but look at what's said about them. There are people who are strong and numerous and as tall as the Anakites. Isn't it shameful? Well, maybe say, how shameful that Israel couldn't do what Lot's descendants could how shameful that Israel couldn't do what Lot's family could. Taking possession of a land that God's given them, even though there's tall and mighty people in there. And in verse 14 it says, During the 38 years that entire generation of fighting men perished from the camp. This is sarcasm or it's irony. Because this entire generation of fighting men, they'd refused to fight. And some choices have huge and lasting consequences. They refuse to trust and obey God, and so effectively God fights against them. Verse 15, the Lord's hand was against them to destroy them from the camp until they were all eliminated or literally all perished. And so Israel is to pass by the region of Moab, Moab there, bottom right, shaded in brown, had to pass by Moab and the land of the Ammonites, on the right, in yellow. For that too, God has given to Lot's descendants. And that too used to have tall, strong Rephaites living in it. But the Lord destroyed before the Ammonites these tall and strong peoples. And if you look yeah, chapter 2, verse 20 to 24, all these names here of gigantic people, they had a terrorizing effect on others. They were the Goliaths, may we say the hulks of that time in ancient Palestine, minus the green, of course. But God dispossessed them and gave their, their land to Lot's descendants as a possession. And the question that we're left asking is, will Israel do the same? God provided for Lot's family. Will Israel believe that God will provide for them also? Esau and Lot's descendants were willing to take possession of the Lord's gift for them, giants or no giants. And Israel must face their giants before they can pass any further. Coming to the next section in the defeat of Sion, king of Heshbon. This remembers events recorded in Numbers 21. You could read that later. 
But the Lord now says, verse 24, See, I have given into your hands Sion the Amorite, king of Heshbon, and his country begin to take possession of it and engage him in battle. Israel has finished with their, their passing by now. Now they are to start to take possession of what God has provided for them. They don't need to fear because God says others will fear you. The Lord repeats the command in verse 31 to conquer and possess Sion's land. Sion means warrior. But still God gives him over and he and his sons, so his dynasty, are all destroyed. And so are his army and so are the towns and all the people in them. Verse 34, men, women and children too. We left no survivors. The same thing happens with Og's landing in chapter 3, verse 6. Many people, many Christians struggle with this. Many ask, how can a good God command the killing of women and children especially? We can be puzzled by this maybe even embarrassed if others question us on it. Deuteronomy chapter 7 and chapter 20 will cover this in greater detail, so I trust we'll come back to it in time. But, but three brief comments for now. Firstly, in Genesis 15 verse 16, God said to Abraham hundreds of years earlier that after years in Egypt in the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here to the promised land. For the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. So in Israel killing the Amorites and Canaanites, God was judging them for their sin. And we can trust that the God of all the earth will do right. He's just and he will do right. The wages of sin is death. The Amorites were a wicked people who even sacrificed their children to their idols. They'd sinned and they deserved death. All people do, don't they? You see, God was just in killing all humanity nearly in Noah's flood. God was just in killing Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5 when they lied about their giving. God will act justly at the final judgment and God is just here. Whatever our age, our sin makes us deserving of death. And we forget that. We forget that. But secondly, killing the Amorites was a protective measure for God's people. The nations will turn, if they are left alive, they will turn Israel away from devotion to the Lord and instead to follow after their idols. And thirdly, it needs to be said that this killing of everyone, this genocide, was a specific situation for a specific time 
obeying specific revelation from God. So the war was initiated by God. The strategy was determined by him and it's against a specific target. There's no blanket, perpetual permission slip for doing this. And it doesn't apply today. Unlike what the Quran teaches. For in the Quran you will find teachings like in Surah or chapter 8 verse 39 which says, And fight them, those who disbelieve, until persecution is no more and religion is all for Allah. Or Surah 9 verse 5, Then when the sacred months have passed, slay the idolaters wherever ye find them and take them and besiege them unless they repent. The God of the Bible instructs his people very differently to this. Coming back to Deuteronomy 2, verse 36, the Israelites take possession of the land of the Amorites, which God's given them. And then the same thing happens with Og, king of Bashan in chapter 3, which we didn't read today, but he's also mentioned on the map at the top. And so Israel now stands on the threshold of entering Palestine, entering the promised land proper, but they have one more battle to fight. And what we are told, what, what are we told about Og, king of Bashan? Look at verse 11, chapter 3, verse 11. He was the last of the Rephaites. Remember, they're the giant Goliath-like people. And in fact, his bed, we're told, his bed was four metres long, one and a half metres wide. His bed wouldn't fit in my bedroom. He wasn't necessarily four metres tall. We don't know how tall he was, but he was huge, a hulk, a superman with a, an immense physique. His name literally means long neck. He's tall. But if Israel was scared of him, God's voice breaks through to calm any fears in verse 2. And what God promises, God gives. Verse 3. You see, giants and Goliaths are no problem for our great God. Og's land is given as a possession to Israel. And from verse 12, we're told that two and a half tribes of the 12 tribes of Israel were given this land on the east side of the Jordan. On the right, the east side of the Jordan, Reuben and Gad and half of Manasseh were given this land as their possession, verse 18. I wonder what you'd like to take possession of or inherit. Maybe a sports car or a million dollars? Maybe just money to pay a cleaner and a nanny. Maybe it's a new house with a pool or an acre block in the country. These tribes of Israel are given a beautiful, bountiful land. They move into ready-built houses with farms and crops already planted. But all Israel is one people. They are a unity and as Moses, the Lord through Moses says, the fighting men are to continue with the rest of Israel, west, across the Jordan, to take the, the rest of the promised lands in Palestine. And the future possession, future rest is what is looked to in verse 20. 
But the text it finishes with Moses missing out on this possession. In Numbers chapter 20, Moses had failed to obey the Lord. And while in verse 23, he pleads with the Lord again to allow him to enter the promised lands. As we know too, sometimes the Lord answers our prayers with a no. And failing to trust and obey God can have huge and lasting consequences. But Moses is assured, verse 28, that Joshua will lead the people to inherit. Hebrew word also means possess the land which Moses now sees. So as we think about how this relates to us and applies to us, we need to understand that God has promised us a possession. He's promised us an inheritance. Hundreds of years after Moses, God sent Israel into exile away from the promised land. And a number of Old Testament prophets had prophesied the restoration of God's people in the promised land. But the New Testament transforms these prophecies by focusing on a heavenly kingdom of God, a heavenly land, a new heavens and earth. Geographical land for God's people now is no longer God's concern. It's no longer promise for God's new covenant people. And so there, there is no need for physical or military conquests no more holy wars to be fought for land. And that's what's so sad and so wrong about the Crusades. When we follow Christ, we are promised a heavenly inheritance by God. In Matthew chapter 25, Jesus, in the parable of the sheep and the goats, he says to those those people who have loved their fellow believers and cared for the hungry and the thirsty and the stranger, those who have loved and cared for the naked and the sick and those in prison, they will be told this by King Jesus. Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. And then in 1 Peter chapter 1, Apostle Peter says this, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. Kept, this inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last time. So did you notice that it's by, because of God's great mercy and through and because of the, Jesus' resurrection from the dead that we're given this inheritance in heaven that we'll never lose and we receive it through faith. And so God offered he offered Israel the promised land, but it had to be taken hold of, possessed, received. And that's like salvation for us. It's offered 
It's offered to all. It's offered to you. It must be taken and received. The gift must be received. What God gives and holds out must be received by faith. This is what Ephesians chapter 1 says. You also were included in Christ when when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a, a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession for the praise of his glory. I have a friend who I've known for 25 years. We went to uni together and two years ago he heard the gospel again and he believed it. I was very thankful that day. He believed that Jesus died and rose again for his salvation. He believed that Jesus took the huge consequences for his sin on the cross And my friend turned from his sin and self-rule and he put his trust in Jesus as Saviour and Lord. And while some other churchgoer said to my friend that he doesn't have the spirits because he hasn't spoken in tongues, I told him that's a lie. And I pointed him to Ephesians chapter 1, which says that when we believe the gospel of Jesus, we're given the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, we're told here, is a guarantee of our inheritance to come. The Holy Spirit is a guarantee of heaven and a place in God's eternal and heavenly kingdom, the new heavens and earth. And if we've truly trusted in Jesus, we have a place reserved for us at Jesus' banquets. We have a place reserved for us in heaven where we will lack nothing and where there will be overflowing joy and provision forever. Provision forever. Let that sink in. Let that comforts you that that promise grow your hope. And even now you are God's possession. God has you. He'll keep you. He'll hold you. He keeps his promises. He will bring you to heaven. Paul could assure the Ephesians of these promises because he'd seen their faith in the Lord Jesus, verse 15, Ephesians 1.15, he'd seen their faith in the Lord Jesus and their love for all God's people. But for those who haven't trusted in Jesus and lived with him as Lord of their lives, loving others, then they will perish. Just as Jesus said in the parable of the sheep and the goats in Matthew 25. The King Jesus will say to them on that last day, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. 
choose to trust and obey Jesus because some choices have huge and lasting consequences. Moses missed out on the promised land. He perished on the edge of it. But he didn't miss out on his eternal heavenly inheritance. All God's people, we too, receive a place in this heavenly kingdom by faith and by persevering in our faith and trust. And when we trust God, it shows in action. Trusting God shows in obedience, in a changed life. And don't forget that God's power, God's power in 1 Peter 1, God's power enables you and I to persevere in faith, trusting in him so we will receive this eternal heavenly inheritance. It's God's power that enables us to persevere so we reach that heavenly promised lands. So keep looking to him in faith. And I ask you, is your faith hanging in there, persevering? Is it persevering in the trials that are facing you at the moment? The challenges that you're going through in your life. I pray that your faith will persevere in those challenges. But I ask too, if you have kids, are you modelling faith to them? Our children see the way we respond to life in all of its trials and its joys. So I ask, what did your children see when the news of the redundancy came through? What did your children see when they saw you lose your temper at your spouse? What did your children see when the phone rang with bad news about your elderly parents? Or when the credit card bill arrived? How can we teach our children to trust in Jesus for their biggest need when we don't show that we trust him with our smaller needs? And sometimes it's really hard to keep trusting God in action, isn't it? I know it is. Especially when faced with giants or with giant hardships. And as one author says, all too often we want control. But the decision to follow Christ is a relinquishment of control. Following Christ is letting Jesus take the wheel. Of course, some of us like to act like backseat drivers with God, telling him what to do. Or worse yet, we're like little kids who make their parents crazy by asking one question over and over again. Are we there yet? God, are we there yet? While we may stop pestering our parents, we never outgrow the desire to know exactly where we're headed and exactly when we'll get there or when things will change. We want a complete itinerary with everything mapped out. We are control freaks. But faith involves a loss of control. And with a loss of control comes a loss of certainty. And this author, Mark Batterson, says faith is the willingness to embrace those uncertainties. 
That's true in this life. We don't know what will happen to us or what is to come in the future of this life. Some things are uncertain. But we can be certain of God's presence. We can be certain that God will give us what he's promised. We can be certain that his power will keep us. And we can be sure and certain that our destination, by God's grace, is heaven. Certain of our destination. We need to remember that we're passing through in this life. And we may, be need, we may need to be willing to pass by the desire or the, the longing for certain things. Maybe you need to pass by the longing for that sports car or the million dollars or the house with the pool or the money to pay for the nanny and the cleaner. Pass by that desire for the acre block in the country. We're passing through this life and we need to keep looking to our bountiful, eternal, heavenly inheritance that is to come. Keep looking forward. In Deuteronomy 2 and 3, Israel had begun to take the possession of the land God had provided. But as they stand on the edge of the promised land proper, they must continue to trust in God's promises and possess what he graciously provides or perish. And God still graciously offers salvation and possession of heaven to people today, to us. This inheritance is kept for you who through faith are shielded by God's power. What a great promise. And what a, a great God in which to trust. So fight the good fight of the faith and take hold of the life, the eternal life to which you were called. Take hold of the life that is truly life. Let's pray. Our Lord God and Heavenly Father, we praise and thank you that better than a promised land in Palestine, it's not permanent. You promise us a permanent, eternal dwelling in your presence in the new heavens and the new earth. Please help us to persevere in trusting Jesus until he comes or until you bring us home. Please give us the power and strength of your Holy Spirit to keep trusting you when we're faced with giants to believe your promises because they are sure and certain. Amen.